Well, let's get our Bibles out. Get them open to Mark chapter 9. If you have a pew Bible, open it up. You go right to the New Testament. You're only two books in in the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 9. And as we wind down our Together series, this is the final weekend for it. What we're going to keep echoing is this truth that we began at the very first sermon of the series, Genesis 2.18, that we're not meant, we're not created to be alone. We're created to be in community. And that created longing to be together, to be in community, it could best be met among God's people. Because it's only in the church. Now I want you to hear this right at the very beginning again. It goes all the way back nine weeks ago. It's only in the church that we can be together both with God and at the same time with God's people. This is the way God's original intent was to be realized. It's what we're all going to experience for eternity if you're a Christian. And today we're going to see the importance of maintaining peace with each other, something that is much easier to preach and to listen to than it is to actually do. So let's make sure our Bibles are open to Mark chapter 9. We're going to aim to get to verse 50. Here's a little bit of a, a warning. Most of this message that you're about to hear is going to be spent in creating, or not creating, but understanding the context and then at the end of the message, right at the last seven minutes or so, we're going to get to chapter 9, verse 50. So let's start together. I'm going to work our way slowly through this. I'm going to give you a little bit of explanation. But what I'm doing right now as we read through this is we're learning the context. It is super important we understand the context when we read the Word of God. So we're going to practice that right now. So here we go. Chapter 9 of Mark. We all have to have our Bibles open. Are you not really going to understand this message? Verse 33, let's start there. And they came to Capernaum. They is, they is Jesus, plus his disciples. And when he was in the house, he asked them. When Jesus was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Now they're walking, they're not in a bus, they're not in a van, they didn't have them. They're walking everywhere they went. But the disciples kept silent. Here's why. You ready? For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Which of them was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve. So he sits down, he goes into this house, and he calls his twelve disciples to him. Now this was the formal posture of a rabbi when he was about to teach or instruct his disciples. So there's something in this. When Jesus sits down, that his classroom is open. And here's the lesson, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, If anyone would be first or greatest, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking that child in his arms. Can you not see Jesus doing that? What a beautiful picture. He said to them. So you got to get the drama. He's taking a child in his arms. But he's looking at his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. It's critical that they get 
the message, the lesson that he's trying to impart. And he says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That would be his father, our heavenly father. John said to him, John's one of his disciples, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now just glance really quickly at verse 18. Could it be that they didn't want anyone to be successful since they failed to cast a demon out of somebody? Could that be behind John's angst? Well, if we couldn't do it right, well, I'm kind of jealous that somebody else is doing this. Back to verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him, the guy that's casting out demons in the name of Jesus, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak of me, speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now look again at verse 38. Doesn't that seem a little odd? I mean, I'm pretty sure John did not have ADHD. There's no indication that he had a short attention span. But Jesus is right in the middle of teaching something, and John comes way around the bushes to say something about some other guy casting out demons. Why? What is going on? Well, I gave you one idea that, remember, they're arguing about who is the greatest, and they had just previous to this spectacularly failed. But here's somebody that's successful. And I would imagine that sort of instigated this contest of wills about who's actually greater than the other. But I think what John was doing, it was to try to divert the rebuke of Jesus. We all do tend to do that. Let's get the attention of Jesus off of us because this is uncomfortable. Because we were wrong. And he's putting his finger on it. Let's get his finger on somebody else. Let's shift the blame. But Jesus is a master rabbi. He would not have it because their love for each other, the disciples' love for each other, is the target of his teaching. Verse 34 reveals they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Look at verse 50. He commands them to be at peace with one another. There's your bookends for context. They're arguing about who is the greatest. He's going to wrap up this lesson. His whole lesson is aiming at this one statement. You must learn to be at peace with one another. And what he's about to teach, all of what I'm doing is just giving you an introduction to the context. What Jesus is about to teach is directed to their pride. And he's aiming at helping them learn to be peacemakers. Something you cannot do if you have a heart full of pride. He's going to give three points. I'm going to put my own titles on them, and then I'm going to try to explain them. The first one is this. You ready? We're going to take a really hard dive into this. This is a really sobering sermon. 
Number one, radical responsibility. Verse 42, whoever causes, Jesus says, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Can you picture Jesus speaking like this? These are among his most severe words that he ever, ever spoke. I mean, some of us have this picture of the Old Testament God being all kinds of wrathful and judgmental. And then you get to the New Testament Jesus and he's kind and gracious and loving to everybody. God hasn't changed. He doesn't have a split personality. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is fully God when he is holy. And he is fully God when he is gracious. But we've got these words about millstones and around necks. And we talk about little people. And, and all of a sudden you're kind of thinking, well, he just was holding a little boy. So he must be talking about tempting children. But that's really not what Jesus is talking about. Little children or little ones isn't really applied to children. You get that out of verse 41, if you're careful with your interpretation. It's more applied to young believers, those who have recently become saved. So little ones are fellow believers, especially new, vulnerable believers. And we have a radical responsibility, Jesus is teaching, to never cause another Christian to sin especially one who could easily lose their faith. And if we do cause a Christian to sin, or we do cause a young believer to lose their faith in Christ, his judgment is severe. Imagine, let me put it into a little bit of a more, more of an evocative uh, understanding in this. Imagine you're taking out, taken out to sea in a boat... And a rope is tied around your neck in a hangman's noose. And the other end of the rope is tied through the hollow center of a massive millstone, usually weighing upwards of 3,000 pounds. They had two kinds of millstones. One was a smaller one that the ladies could use because it was often their job to crush the grains to get to the flour and they would run this walk this millstone around in a circle doing that that's a little millstone the big one required a donkey to move it this greek word is the big one so imagine you've got a millstone on the other end of the rope it's a hollow donut shaped stone ton and a half and you're sitting in the boat You've been sentenced to die, and you're in the middle of the sea. And they take that millstone, and they drop it over the side of the ship, and it violently yanks you overboard, and it begins to pull you down to the bottom of the sea. Head first, you descend, salt water filling your nose and your eyes until your mouth flies open of its own accord, desperately gulping for oxygen, but instead, seawater fills your lungs. And the terror consumes your mind as you disappear into the darkness of that ocean, never to be seen by human eyes again, soon your dead body lying lifeless on the bottom. That's the imagery from Jesus. <clears throat> it would be better, Jesus said, to die this way 
rather than to, to experience the judgment that God will level against you if you cause a fellow believer to sin. Have you ever seen it like that? You know, there's not much that angered Jesus more than those who are religious causing his followers to sin. Listen to what he says of the Pharisees and scribes. They're the pastors of the Jewish people and the experts in the law. He says this, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They will travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's what he thought of the Pharisees and scribes who were causing all kinds of havoc to those who wanted to follow him. See, there's all kinds of ways to cause someone whose faith is new and weak to sin. A few years ago at the State Theater, that's where we're going to be, by the way, and you heard in the announcements for Easter morning, 9.30, make sure you're there. I hope bring a lot of your friends. But a few years ago, a friend of mine came, family that's not a Christian family. They're not believers. But I asked them to come, and they came. This was Easter morning. They sat up in the balcony of the State Theater. And the daughter, about 14 years old, 15 years, I think 15 years old at the time, she knits her own stocking caps, and she had a stocking cap on her head. And during the service, somebody came up behind her and picked the cap off of her head and plopped it into her lap. I was furious when I heard about this. I don't know who did that, but I'm thinking, why? Why would you need to do that? Well, I can hardly exaggerate anything by telling you she's not coming to our church, and neither is that family. Why would you come to a church that would do that? See, there's all kinds of ways that we can get in between those who are seeking Jesus and interpose ourselves and make ourselves an obstacle to finding Jesus. It could be by our poor example. It could be by poor or by our judgmentalism and our criticism of a, of a, of a young believer whose life still is struggling with sin. It could be through false teaching. It could be just outright tempting another Christian to sin. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples with a warning that prideful ambition, remember they're arguing about who is the greatest among them. Prideful ambition can have devastating results in those who are around you and those who are following him. And it's deserving of a terrible penalty. See, we have a radical responsibility for, we, for each other to humbly serve and at, be at peace with one another. Something you cannot do if your heart's and my heart is full of pride. But then he moves on to point number two. Well, there not just must be radical responsibility, but there must be a radical repentance. So he sat down again and he challenged his disciples through a really serious chat about their own hearts. Basically, he's saying, why are you not alarmed at the terrible pride in your own hearts? Now, he doesn't say it like this. I'm going to tell you why. 
Because if you ever try to tell a prideful person that they're prideful, you're going to find out very quickly they cannot see it, at least. And they're going to put walls of defenses immediately. So it never really helps to go tell a prideful person, I think I see a lot of pride in you. That's not really the right approach. And Jesus knows that. So he begins to teach, verse 43. And if your hand, disciples, causes you to sin, I want you to hear this, cut it off. He's talking to his disciples. Now nobody leave this sermon until I finish this point. I don't want a bunch of self-amputees running around next week. So just listen. I'm going to get to this. But he goes on. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now the guy who built hell just told you what it's like. That would be Jesus. Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus in any of the Bible. We don't like to know that. We don't like to say that, but that's true by far. So Christian, there is an attitude we all must have with our own sin. And that attitude is one of radical repentance. Whatever it takes, you've got to get that sin out of your life. So let me ask you a question for just a moment. One that I've had to be asking all week. Do we have this attitude toward our own sin? Now let me explain something from my own life. And I'm going to ask you to be thoughtfully listening. Thoughtfully listening. The other day my sweet tooth, really all my teeth are sweet. They all love sugar. Mounged down on way more sticky buns than I should have. I walked by them four times, each time saying, no, I'm not going to eat one. I already had one this morning. I've got to resist. Finally, I walked out of the kitchen, made a circuitous route back to the kitchen, and ate all the ones that were left. Some of you are looking at my stomach right now. That's offensive. <laughs> now, afterward... Afterward, I felt terrible physically, and I felt frustrated mentally because I haven't been feeling real well lately, and I know part of it I really need to lose a little weight. But you know what? Here's the part that I want you to really thoughtfully listen. It wasn't until the next day that I felt bad spiritually. See, in the moment of eating them, I enjoyed them more than I enjoy my God. And I received more satisfaction from those sticky buns than I do from my Heavenly Father in that moment. You see, reaching out and eating more than I should have fulfilled a demand in my heart to control my world in prideful independence. Rather than humble gratitude to just eating in moderation. 
See, friends, this is why we learn to pray before we eat, so that we can bless the giver of the food, guarding our hearts against selfish, arrogant, pleasure-seeking, enjoying what our God has given us with humble, dependent gratitude. Now, I'm telling you this, and right now you might be wondering, what's the big deal with overeating? And the Bible is going to answer you that gluttony is so terrible because it's a godless, pride-inflated act of self-worship. What I did with those sticky buns, whether you can see it or not, put Jesus Christ on the cross. And I had to repent. See, we often trivialize our sin. And Jesus says we've got to have a radical repentance toward every single sin that the Spirit of God reveals in our hearts. The disciples in this house, at the feet of Jesus, didn't seem to have a radical repentance. In fact, they diverted the conversation to somebody that's doing good things for people who belong to a different rabbi. But Jesus shows them their own hearts. And he says, focus on your hearts with radical repentance. And his words are shocking to us. They're as shocking to us as they must have been to them. Cut off your hand if you steal. Gouge out your eye if you lust after someone. Cut off your foot if you go to a weed party. I mean, he's really serious about this. But be careful with this. Don't ask a Christian next week if they come to church with an eye patch, if they had a rough week with sin. Don't assume. Be super careful. Know for certain that Jesus is not right here recommending self-mutilation. You almost have to say it again. He's not recommending self-mutilation. That's not his point. It's super easy to find out why that's not his point because you can actually have no feet and no legs, and no eyes, and be just as great a sinner as you were before. The problem is not your appendages. The problem is your heart. The problem's my heart. Ironically, if you want to see that clearly, you could just watch Monty Python's Holy Grail movie, believe it or not, where King Arthur meets the Black Knight who won't let Arthur cross the bridge. And if you've seen the movie, you remember the The scene, they draw swords in that British comedy, and Arthur successfully cuts off all four major limbs of the knight, who continues as a stump, basically, spewing out blood, profaning with hostile threats. That scene actually portrays a very sobering spiritual reality. The problem is not our hands, it's not our eyes, it's not our feet. They can all be cut off, but still the roots of the sin are going to motivate us to prideful independence. That's the problem with our hearts. So the words of Christ here are meant to jolt us to the sobering reality that we've got to develop a mindset of radical repentance. Sin has to be cut out of our hearts. And here his teaching is the law that leads to his grace. You know, that's what the law of God was for, right? All those Ten Commandments, all those commands from Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, they're all meant to hold up the pure and holy, perfect 
character and attribute and personhood of God himself. And then that word, the, the word of God, the law, that turns all of a sudden like a mirror to you and all of a sudden compared to God's holiness, you don't look very good. There's a lot wrong in you. There's a lot wrong in me. And it, it, it's meant to motivate us in a direction. See, the law of God was a constant readout display of God's perfect holiness. Kind of like that day that years ago, I'm driving down Southside, I'm coming into Easton, and I was actually driving within the speed limit, but there around a curve was a police car with a digital readout with a radar that was telling you how fast you were going. And the moment I saw that readout, guess what I did? I took my foot off the gas and put it on the brake. And I was within the speed limit. It was just an automatic response. That's the purpose of the law of God. It's to arrest sin. It's to get you to examine inwardly. See if you're within the bounds of God's holiness. And usually we're not. So the law of God was a readout display of God's perfect holiness. This is who God is, the law said, and you must live to this standard. And there is the problem. Now, did you hear what I just said? The word of God reveals to us the perfect holiness of God, and it demands that we live to that standard. Sin is falling short of that standard. The problem is, and Jesus knows, the Father knows, we have, no matter how hard we try, no ability to keep this standard. We keep falling short of the perfect standard of God's holiness. And guess what? God will not relax his standard. He's not like that new mom and dad. That when their little toddler acts out in public, they just kind of grin and bear it and say, oh, he's hungry or tired. We'll just give him a pass on this one. Well, that's not usually the best parenting. Because even when you're hungry and tired, there's a standard of God's holiness that your toddler's falling short of. That we call that sin in the Bible. So God's not going to relax his standard. You, therefore, Jesus said, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the demand of God. But he knows we cannot meet it, so he meets it for us. And he sends his son to do what we could not do, to live a life of perfect holiness. So listen, when you hear Jesus in Mark chapter 9 telling his disciples that if your hand leads you to sin, cut it off. What he's doing is he's driving them to the absolute utter need of his grace. Because they cannot keep that standard. So what does God do? Well, 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's super simple. Let me just say it this way. If you're here right now, and you know, I don't know, I don't know you that well, I can't see your heart, but you know, and you've rejected Jesus, you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, you don't trust Jesus for your salvation, you've not yet humbled yourself to Jesus. Listen, here's where you are right now, you just got to face it, this is the truth for you, you're having to live your life up to the standard of God, and you're responsible, and he will hold you accountable for living that standard, and you're going to fall short, nobody not falls short. How's that for horrible grammar? Now, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, listen, let me caution you. 
You're no better than the unbeliever here. You just woke up to your condition. All of a sudden, you saw your standard way short of God's standard. You saw his demand on you, and there was no way to bridge that gap. There was no way to pay for your sin. So you put your trust and your faith on the one who died on the cross. So God met the standard for you in Jesus. He lived the life you could not live so you could have the holiness and the righteousness of Christ freely. That's grace. See, we trust Jesus. That's called faith. Put the weight of your soul upon it. That's called faith. You didn't stop and think. I don't think today when you sat on that pew that you're sitting in right now, you just blindly trusted it to hold your weight. That's faith. So you trust Jesus. That's faith that God will take all those times that you have fallen short of his perfect standard and he will forgive them because of what Jesus did in your place and in my place on the cross. But you've got to come to the place where you can see that you have absolutely no moral capital to pay for your sins. Now, if you're a Christian, you had to have come to that place. I'm falling short of the standard. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing I can give to God that's going to barter for my eternal life. If you've not yet become a Christian, you're not yet getting to that point. The moment God gets you to that point, when you realize your great need, this great gap between you and God, the failure of your ability to keep that standard, his inability and refusal to bring down that standard, you're in a pickle, you're in a bind. You have no moral capital, you have no cash spiritually to buy your forgiveness. What are you going to do? You've got to get to the point where you are morally bankrupt. When you realize, you look into your account of your soul, there's nothing there it's empty blessed are you jesus said when you get to that place because now you're poor in spirit now you've got the poverty of your soul and now you will reach out to jesus who died on the cross in your place you see this is why jesus Earlier in Luke said, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I'm heading to Jerusalem to be crucified on a cross. It's going to be in just a month or two from Mark chapter 9 in our standard failing place. He's going to die in our place to do for us what we could not do for ourselves so that we can have life. So what's he say? You've got to trust in me. I'm going to save you from condemnation. I've got the power to give you so that you can radically begin to deal with the ongoing devastating pride in your hearts. This is why you're arguing about who who's the greatest, I've come to save you from that, to take that pride out so that you can serve one another at peace and be at peace with one another. And deal with it we must because if you are not going to turn to Christ, you will go with all of your limbs, eyes, feet, and arms straight into the unquenchable place the Bible calls hell. See, we do battle against that sin in us. And you know how you do it? It's one of my favorite two verses in the Bible. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm going to flip that so you can understand it better. It is God, Christian, who is working in you both to will so that you want what he wants so that you can do what he wants you to do for his glory, for his pleasure. So because he's working in you, because he's giving you the power to do it, because he set you free from your old nature, he's giving you a new nature, a new heart, the spirit of God in you. You got the very power of God in you. Because of that, then here's what you do. You work out your own salvation. You radically repent. You pull that sin out by the grace and the power of God. That's our power given to us by the grace of God. See, there's a radical responsibility for one another in the church. You cannot cause a little one to sin. There's a radical repentance that needs to be our ongoing discipline of life. Knowing that Jesus died in our place, we don't repent to be saved. We don't repent to make God happy. We repent because he's telling you that sin is robbing you of life. Those sticky buns are making you guilty. That's not the way to live. So you got to pull it out in the power that God gives. And it yields, number three, a radical reconciliation. I'm going to be very brief. Mark chapter 9, look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you, be, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, this has been a strange passage already. This isn't helping anything. I mean, you got salt and you got fire, you've got millstones and little children and cutting off appendages. I mean, this is an interpretively ta- challenging passage. But what does it mean to have salt in yourself? How do we become salty again? Well, I got to take you all the way back to the Old Testament for a moment, and you can see this on the screen behind me, Ezekiel chapter 43. You shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish, and a ram from the flock without blemish. Can never give God what was defective. He wouldn't take it. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priests shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, here we go. What was the purpose of salt? Why did they need to throw it onto the sacrifice when they were bringing it to the altar? Was it to keep the smell down as the hair burns? That's not really why. See, the salt was a symbol, the Bible says, of God's enduring faithfulness to all generations. I want you to write that down somewhere, even if you mentally inscribe it on your mind. Salt in the Bible was most centrally a symbol of God's enduring faithfulness to all generations. But Israel had five offerings that they were to bring before the Lord. Four of them were animal offerings. I just read to you one of them from Ezekiel 43. And they all represented those animal offerings, all represented their need for their forgiveness of their sins. Because guess what? They fell short of the glory of God. They fell short of the standard and God wouldn't lower the standard. So he accepted an animal to die in your place. Wow, that's loud. So he accepted an animal to die in your place. It's called substitutionary atonement. It's beautiful. Except it was temporary in the Old Testament. The next time you sin, you need another animal. Something else has to die for you again. 
But I told you there's five offerings that they brought before the Lord for were animal sacrifices. There's a fifth. It's called the grain offering. And look what you do in the grain offering in Leviticus 2. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. The grain offering wasn't for sin. It was an offering of consecration. It meant that, you know what, I want to dedicate my life to God. I want to devote my life to God. So I'm going to bring a bushel of grain, and the, the priest is going to sprinkle it with salt, and I'm going to give it to the Lord. And this represents that I want the newness of life represented in that grain to fill my heart in a devotion and a dedication to God. God, I am determining by your grace to live on the altar for you. Now you go back to Romans 12, 1. All of a sudden we read, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does God want? He wants all of us on the altar in dedication, consecration, and devotion. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, as we get back to the passage, have salt in yourselves. What he's saying is, get back on the altar, disciples. Right now you care more for your own greatness because of your pride-motivated egos than you care for me. Get back on the altar, humble yourself, devote and dedicate yourself in humble obedience to me. Now, Christian, when God shows you your sin, you deal with it radically by the gracious power of God that is in you. So I would actually say this. If you could show me a church that is full of division, bickering, and gossip, I'm going to show you that that church has lost its saltiness. And if you're a Christian whose manner of life is abrasive and unmerciful and arrogant... You're, going to, you're a Christian who needs to get salt back in your life. You got to salt yourself. You got to get back on the altar. You got to get devoted to Christ. You, don't, you won't want to be great over other people when you lay down on that altar. There won't be arguing and fighting. And guess what? Verse 50 you're going to find all of a sudden your heart is happy to be at peace with one another. Now let's just bring it down. So personal. You're the only one that can answer this. I cannot answer this for you. And I'm telling you, I don't have anybody in mind when I'm asking this. But is there anybody here right now who is a divisive, bickering, oversensitive person? Where there's a breach in your relationship and you know what? You're okay with it because you can't stand that person anyways. you got to get salt back in your heart. And you got to get back on the altar because I'm telling you, you stepped off of it. And you became great in your own eyes. You became arrogant. And you look greater and righter and more justified than the person that you're angry at, the one you walked away from. And you've got a responsibility, a very radical one, to love every single person in the church. And you've got a radical repentance that's got to happen in your heart. And that pride gets pulled out by its root system so that there can become a radical reconciliation. Cornerstone, if we're going to be together in this church, the people of God, 
then let us serve our God with peace towards one another. Amen.